Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1042. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section of the Gospel of Matthew for a few weeks now. We've come to the end of chapter 14, and we'll be uh, looking also into the beginning of chapter 15. I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, spiritual blindness. Matthew chapter 14. And we'll begin reading in verse 34. Verse 34. And this is what the Word of God says. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now let's continue into chapter 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Every vehicle has them. Just ask any parent who is teaching their child how to drive. They know exactly where the blind spots in the vehicle are located. But blind spots are not just limited to vehicles. Everyone has blind spots. The Pharisees and the scribes had blind spots. Jesus' disciples had blind spots. And you and I have blind spots. The Pharisees and the scribes were so blind spiritually that Jesus said in this passage they were blind guides leading the blind. The disciples were so blind that Jesus says in this passage that they still lacked understanding of who he was and of what he taught. 
And you and I are so spiritually blind that like the religious leaders and crowds of Jesus' day, we think that our outward actions and performance make us more acceptable and more pleasing to God. All the while, God is most concerned about the condition of our hearts. And just as the blind spots in our vehicles have potentially dangerous effects, our spiritual blind spots, according to Jesus, can cause us, if left unchecked, to fall into a pit of eternal destruction. In this passage, Jesus confronts the spiritual blindness of the Jewish religious system of his day and of its leaders, showing the worthlessness of this system's traditions and the emptiness of their worship. And at the same time, he addresses the key to overcoming our spiritual blindness, the condition of our hearts. So would you note with me, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, the accusation of the leaders. Matthew says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now at the end of Matthew chapter 14, Matthew tells us that Jesus had just performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And that he had just performed the miracle of walking on the water. And that after Jesus stepped into the boat and calmed the storm, the disciples' boat found itself on land. And in verses 34 to 36 of Matthew chapter 14, Matthew tells us that they came to the land of Gennesaret. And that when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Now you'll notice at the end of chapter 14, in verses 34 to 36, how this town and the people of this town respond to Jesus. The verbs in these verses tell the story. They recognized him, they sent, they brought, they implored, and they touched this is heavy movement in action that is taking place in this passage. But what's interesting is that Matthew gives us no hint that this group of people wanted anything more from Jesus than their physical healing. He gives us no hint that they wanted to become followers of Jesus. This crowd, like so many other crowds before them, were spiritually blind to who Jesus was and all they wanted was what they could get and receive from Jesus. And while Jesus is ministering to this crowd who wants nothing to do with them but their physical healing, Matthew tells us in verses 1 and 2 that a delegation of Pharisees and scribes came all the way from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Now the Pharisees were a religious order who devoted themselves to the strict adherence of the law. And the scribes were the Jewish scholars who copied the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament, and they were considered to be the professional interpreters of the law of God. And the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes were united together in their confrontation of Jesus, and that they came all the way from Jerusalem to confront him, tells us at the very outset of this account how serious this confrontation was. Matthew has shown us that Jesus is a man who can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. That he's a man who can walk on water and calm the sea. That Jesus is a man of such power that if you just touch the very fringe of his garment in faith, you will be completely healed of all of your sicknesses. This is the man that the Pharisees and the scribes came to confront. And if you were going to confront this man, what question would you ask of him? Well, in verse number two, the religious leaders ask of Jesus, 
why his disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now their question, to be clear at the outset, had nothing to do with whether or not the disciples' hands were clean. Their question was at the heart of traditions. And Matthew tells us specifically, it was the traditions of the elders. These traditions referred to the oral law, which had been developed to try to explain and apply the Old Testament law. The tradition of the elders goes all the way back to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament when the law of God was rediscovered. The scribes began to study it and the teachers began to explore all the ways that this law could be applied in people's lives in practical situations. And the end result of all of this study was that people were left with two authorities. They were left with the authority of the law of God given to God, given from God to Moses, and they were left with the authority of the tradition of the elders. Now, all of these traditions were put into a collection known as the Talmud. And this collection taught that God gave these traditions orally to Moses on the mountain and told Moses to pass them down to the leading men of Israel. And that these leading men of Israel were to do three things with these traditions. They were to deliberate on the traditions and properly apply them. They were to train disciples in the next generation after them so that they could in turn apply these traditions to the generation after them. And they were to take these traditions and use them to build a wall of protection around the law of God. There's only one problem. Their traditions did nothing to protect the law of God. They did everything to obscure God's law and to pervert it. And over time, these traditions would eventually be seen and used as more important than the very law of God. In fact, some considered it a worse sin to disobey the traditions of the elders than to disobey the law of God. And so the Pharisees and the scribes' accusation in verse number 2 was that the disciples of Jesus broke the tradition of the elders because they did not wash their hands before they ate. Now in Mark's account of this story, He tells us that their accusation about washing hands had nothing to do with cleanliness. It was about ceremonial ritual and ceremonial washings. And in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, this is what Mark says. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Mark tells us that the purpose of all of these washings and of the washing of the hands in particular was to remove ritual defilement. It was to remove uncleanness from their lives. You see, these religious leaders believed that by touching something that was unclean, you became unclean. And when you became unclean and you interacted with someone else, they became unclean. And on and on it went until everyone and everything had become defiled. And the antidote to the defilement was practicing these ritual ceremonies of washing your hands and washing pots and cups and copper vessels. In a book entitled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, the author gives a brief description of how 
crazy these washings were. This is how he describes the washing of the hands that would have taken place that the Pharisees and scribes are referring to. The water was first poured on both hands, held with the fingers pointed upwards, and must run up the arm as far as the wrist. And then the water must drop off from the wrist, for the water itself was now unclean, having touched the unclean hands. And if it ran down the finger again, it would again render the finger unclean. The process was then repeated with the hands held in the opposite direction, with fingers pointing down. And then finally, each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with the fist of the other hand. And a really devout and strict Jew would do this not only before a meal, but in between every course that they ate. This is their accusation to Jesus. Your disciples don't wash their hands. But at the heart of this accusations, friends, it's not so much about the disciples. It's about Jesus himself. Because you'll notice in verse number two, they say, why do your disciples not do this? You see, in the context of that day, a rabbi was responsible for the actions and the beliefs of his followers. And so what they were really saying to Jesus was, not only are your disciples ceremonially unclean and therefore non-religious, but you yourself are a false teacher and a heretic because your followers are not obeying the tradition of the elders. And what I want you to see in these opening verses this morning is this, friends. In the accusation of these leaders, we see what spiritual blindness does. Spiritual blindness causes us to ask the wrong questions. Spiritual blindness causes us to focus on the wrong issues. Spiritual blindness causes us to develop a hardened heart and a critical spirit. And all the while, we remain blind to the truth. I remember one time when I was living in North Carolina and serving a church there. A man came up to me one day and he said, Do you know what the problem is with our church? And that's always a loaded question when somebody asks you that. Do you know what the problem is with our church? And I said, no. What is the problem? It's because everybody has a different Bible. Look around the room. You see some people with the men's devotional Bible and some people with the women's devotional Bible and some people with the student study Bible and some people with this kind of Bible. And this is the problem of our church. And if we would all just carry and use the same Bible, it would fix all of our problems. And so I said, I bet you have a recommendation for what kind of Bible we should all be using. (laughs) Why, yes. Yes, I do, he said. The 1611 King James Version, the one I've got right here in my hand. The only problem was he didn't have the 1611 King James Version in his hands because if he did, he wouldn't have been able to read it. Spiritually blind to the wrong issues. There was another man in this same church. He came and just walked into my office one day and didn't even knock on the door. And he, he's just looking around at the walls and, can I help you? No, no, no. I'm, I'm looking around the church. I'll be back in a few minutes to tell you what I'm doing. And, and so he left. And he, sure enough, he came back to the office. He said, I've walked through the whole building. I've walked through every room. And do you know what I haven't found? No, what haven't you found? I haven't found a plaque with the Ten Commandments on it anywhere in the church. Anywhere in the church. As if because the church didn't have the Ten Commandments displayed somewhere, the church wasn't biblical. The same guy who probably didn't have the Ten Commandments displayed in his own home. Spiritual blindness 
causes us to focus on the wrong issues. How about this one? We don't sing the doxology every week. We don't pray the Lord's Prayer every week. People all don't dress the same. People all don't talk the same. People all don't act the same. And see, when you say things like that, do you know what you're really saying? People aren't like you. And for some of us, let's just be honest this morning, that's probably a really good thing. (laughs) That the rest of the church is not like us. Because we're spiritually blind to the things that matter most. And if we were honest this morning, there's a little bit of the Pharisees and the scribes and every single one of us in this room and downstairs and online. We too ask the wrong questions of Jesus, just like they did. Well, we not only see the accusation of the leaders, we see in verses 3 to 6 the answer of the Lord And he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void. Did you hear that? For the sake of your tradition... You have made void the word of God. Now you'll notice in these verses that Jesus did not deny that his disciples regarded the tradition of the elders. And he gave no answer or explanation to the accusation that the Pharisees and the scribes made to him. He dismissed it as irrelevant. But in verse 3, do you see what he did do? He answered the Pharisees and scribes question with a question of his own. And he asked them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And with this question, Jesus shifted the issue from breaking tradition to breaking the commandment of God. The Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders, but Jesus accused the Pharisees and scribes of breaking the very commandments of God because of their traditions. Now, you'll notice what Matthew does in verse number three. He uses the word your again, just like he did in verse number two, but this time, with the use of this word, Jesus challenges the religious leader's claim that the Jewish tradition came from Moses. He says, it's not Moses' tradition, it's yours. You made it up. The responsibility is on you. And then, in verses 4 to 6, Jesus illustrates his point with a reference to the fifth commandment and the honoring of mother and father, and then to the subsequent warning of Exodus chapter 21 and verse 17, that whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And what Jesus is doing in these verses is addressing a universally recognized human obligation that we have a responsibility to care for our parents when they are in need. See, I mean, that's, that's why we had so many kids at our house, because we figured at least one out of the four will still like us and care for us when we get older, but they're commanded to do it right here in the text. You see, and here's the problem. Now, I got to give you some more background, and we'll be done with the background soon, but you got to understand the background to really understand what's happening in the text. The Pharisees and scribes had devised a way of avoiding this obligation of caring for parents in their traditions. Mark, in his account, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 11, actually uses the word that they came up with to describe uh, this getting away from the obligation. It's the word Corban. And this word literally means a gift dedicated to God. And here's what they did in their traditions. 
If parents came to their children and said, we're in need and we need your help and we need you to take care of us, if the children didn't want to do it, they could just simply say in response to their parents, Corbin, all of my money, all of my resources that I would use to help you, it's been dedicated to God and therefore I can't help you. You're on your own. It's God's money. It's God's resources. You'll have to find another way for help. But do you know what else it meant that they could do? That these children, while they were still alive, even though they had dedicated this money to God, they could still use it for their needs. They just didn't have to use it to meet the needs of their parents. And you know what made this practice even worse? In the end, they didn't have to give the money to God if they didn't want to. It was all a scheme to avoid responsibility. And those who practiced this tradition, they dishonored their father and their mother, and they disobeyed God. And notice what Jesus says in verse number six about their practice. That for the sake of your tradition, you have made void, you have made empty, you have made powerless the word of God. Do you see what Jesus has done here? He's saying the issue isn't if you have clean hands and if you practice all of these ceremonies and traditions. The real issue is that the views and the thoughts and the commandments of man are being substituted for the very word of God. That you're more concerned about your human thoughts, your human opinions, your human ideas than you are the very word of God and obeying it. And this practice of trusting in unscriptural traditions and practices is dangerous. It harms real People, And I bet you that if we took time this morning and asked people to stand up and give a testimony, people in this room could stand up and give a testimony how they've been a part of a church somewhere in their past who has elevated the tradition of man over the word of God and it has caused great scars and harm to their life and their walk with God. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. And so let me just be real clear this morning, crystal clear. The question for us is not, does this church hold to certain traditions? The question is, does this church hold to certain traditions that contradict the authority of the word of God in this place and in our lives, does our church, do we as individuals hold to certain faulty and misleading traditions that are far removed from the principles and the commandments of the very word of God? The issue is, friends, do you love your traditions and your opinions more than you love the word of God? Are your traditions and your opinions your authority or is the word of God your authority? Do you know why the pulpit is in the center of the room? Because the word of God is the authority for the life of the church. It's not about your opinion. It's not about my opinion. It's not about your tradition. It's not about my tradition. It's not about your preference. It's not about my preference. It is about what the Bible says. Is the word of God the sole authority for our church and for our lives? Well, we not only see the accusation of the leaders and the answer of the Lord in verses 7 through 11, we see the assessment of the leaders. Matthew says that Jesus says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. 
In verses 7 through 9, Jesus makes an assessment of the leaders. He calls them all hypocrites. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13 and tells them that their hearts are far from God and that their worship is in vain and it's empty and it's useless. And this is a condemning assessment of leaders who were considered to be the most devout people of their day. But Jesus' assessment of these leaders is an accurate assessment For a love of tradition more than a genuine love for God always leads, always leads to false worship and a self-righteousness that makes someone think they're holier than they really are. It was empty. It was false. And with these words, Jesus was not only condemning their system, Listen, friends, he was condemning the best that humanity had to offer to God in worship. And he says, in and of yourselves, on your own, apart from me, you have nothing, nothing to offer me in worship. You come near to me with your lips and you sing and you say all of these great things, but the whole time you're doing it, your heart is somewhere else. You're not even close to me. And here's my assessment of your worship. You wasted your time. It's vain. It's empty. You've come into the holiness of God and you've come with your traditions and your pride thinking you're something when you're really Nothing. That's what he was saying to him. It's vain. It's empty. Why? Because you can follow traditions mechanically. You can follow traditions thoughtlessly. You can follow them without conviction, without sincerity, without purity of heart. Because traditions are formed and made by men, they can be accomplished by men. Traditions don't require faith. They don't require trust. They don't require dependence upon God. They don't require the filling of the Spirit of God. Traditions allow you to offer to God what you can do in and of yourselves. And God says, at the end of that, it's nothing. It's empty. And behind Jesus' dismissal of these traditions of the elders in these verses is the principle that he will continue to teach through the rest of his ministry. Our hearts are most important to God. Did you hear that this morning, friend? God is most concerned today about your heart and what's going on inside of you. The heart is... It's the theme of the Bible. The Bible tells us that God wants us to give him our hearts and not just lip service, that we are to believe with our hearts, that we are to love from our hearts, that we're to sing from our heart, we're to obey from our heart, and we are to give him our heart. That's why David cried out to God in the confession of his sin, God, create in me a clean heart. David got it. David understood That the issue is the issue of our hearts. This is what Bishop J.C. Ryle says about our heart. The heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all the relations between God and our souls. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? It is the circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? It is to obey from the heart. Where should Christ dwell? He should dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. And he goes on and he says, let it be a settled resolution with us. That in all our religion, the state of our hearts shall be the main thing. Let it not content us to go to church and observe the forms of religion. Let us look far deeper than this and to desire to have a right heart in the sight of God. That's the issue. 
It's not about your preferences. It's not about your opinions. It's not about your traditions. It's about your heart. Your heart before God. Here's what Jesus was teaching them and what he's teaching us. When the principles of man are taught as doctrine, man's wisdom is elevated above God's wisdom. And that is the very root of sin. Man thinking he's smarter than God. And as long, listen carefully to these next two statements. As long as the wisdom of man is central in the life of the church, the worship of man will be central in the life of the church. As long as man is central, man will be worshipped. But as long as the word of God is central in the church, the worship of God will be central in the church. A church that is saturated with the word of God and the glory of God will truly worship God. Notice what he does in verses 10 and 11. He turns his attention away from the Pharisees and the scribes and he addresses the people. And he tells them in verse 10, hear and understand, pay attention. I'm getting ready to tell you something important. And in verse 11, he gives them a parable. He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Sin comes from the heart, not from your diet. It's what comes out of your mouth, Jesus says, that defiles you, not what you put in it. And he was going right at the Pharisees and the scribes' accusation. And he's saying what matters most before God is not if you have clean hands and not if you eat the right food. What matters most before God is the condition of your heart. And Mark says in Mark 7, 19, that when Jesus gave this parable in verse number 11, that he declared all foods clean. That in one statement, Jesus denounced the entire structure of the scribes and the Pharisees that they used to secure a grip hold on the multitudes. And he labeled their religious rules and regulations, their exegesis, their spirit-stifling, God-dishonoring, Bible-contradicting, man-enslaving, soul-destroying, ego-building, Satan-serving traditions as worthless. Empty. They're gone. Do you know what Jesus is saying to us this morning? He is dismantling our blind spots, just like he did theirs. And he's telling us that we will never, listen to me, we will never be able to clean ourselves up and make ourselves more acceptable to God. Jesus, listen to me, church. Jesus is the only one who can take the unclean and make them clean. You don't have the power and the ability to do it. If you did, you would have already done it. Well, we not only see the accusation of the leaders and the answer of the Lord and the assessment of the leaders, we see the astonishment of the Lord's disciples in verses 12 to 14. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Doesn't this astonish you? It astonishes me that the disciples were astonished that the Pharisees would be offended by Jesus. Doesn't that astonish you? They were so concerned. And who was at the heart of it? Right in the middle of it. Peter. Again. But Jesus wasn't worried about the Pharisees. In verse 13, he says, my father hasn't planted them. And because my father hasn't planted them, their teaching and all of their activity, it'll be rooted up on the last day. It'll come to nothing. They will be dealt with. And then look in verse 14. Not only will they be rooted up, they're blind guides. And they're blind guides leading blind people. And in the end, they will all fall into a pit. 
And what Jesus was saying to his disciples is, why are you afraid? Why are you worried about this group of religious leaders? It's all under control. I've got it. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to look at verse 14 again. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. It would be hard this morning for me to give you a clearer picture of lostness, hopelessness, and the futility of man than verse 14. Jesus couldn't be any more clearer. And if it isn't clear enough for you, maybe Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25 will help you. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Spiritual blindness will lead you to a pit of eternal destruction unless you turn to Jesus. You think you've got it all figured out. You think you know the right way. You think that your good works are going to outweigh your bad works, that something magical is going to happen when you die and God is going to let you into his eternal kingdom. And Proverbs says, that way seems right to you, but in the end, it will lead you to eternal destruction. There is no hope. There is no saving grace. There is no future for a joyful eternity apart from God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And if you're saying to yourself that there's an exception for you, your heart is deceiving you this morning. And God is more concerned about the condition of your heart. Well, we see the accusation of the leaders, the answer of the Lord, the assessment of the leaders, and the astonishment of the Lord's disciples. And finally, we see the application of the Lord's lesson in verses 15 to 20. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Peter comes to Jesus. Jesus, explain to us the parable of verse 11. Jesus, Peter, are you serious? You still don't get it? And you know what's interesting? This is just a side note. If you go read Acts chapter 10, Peter still didn't get it after this. That Jesus had to teach him again in Acts chapter 10. The meaning of this parable is simple to us, but it was astonishing to the Jews. And so in verses 17 and 18, you see it right there, don't you? Jesus explains the parable once more. And in verse 17, he says that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it is expelled. Do you know what he's saying? Whatever you put in your mouth doesn't touch your heart. Now, he's not talking about ingesting things that cause bodily damage, such as drugs and things like that. Then in verse 17, Jesus says, it's what comes out of the mouth that proceeds from the heart that defiles a person. Here's, here's how you're unclean. It's not what you put into your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. It's, it's what's in your heart because what's in your heart is what will eventually come out of your mouth. And what's in your heart that comes out of your mouth is what defiles you and doesn't make you right with God. That's why Jeremiah said, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know their heart? And if you're not convinced, look at what he does in verse 19. In verse 19, he illustrates the parable. And here's what he does, in case you're not aware of it. In verse 19, he lists all the sins that the sixth through the ninth commandments address. And he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft 
and false witness and slander. And do you know what Jesus is teaching us, friends? It's about our heart. And in the first four commandments of the ten, God addresses the heart and our relationship with him. And then commandments five to ten, they deal with others, with our neighbors. That's why Jesus summarized all of the law with two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, first four commandments. Love others, the rest of the commandments. And Jesus is showing them, because your heart is not right with God, what's in your heart is coming out of your mouth and out of your life. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You say, well, pastor, how do I know what's in my heart? It's easy. What's coming out of your mouth? What you say about your spouse is what you have in your heart towards your spouse. What you say about your kids is what's going on in your heart towards your kids. What you say about your congregation is what's in your heart towards your congregation. What you say about your boss is what's in your heart towards your boss. What you say about your parents is what's in your heart towards your parents. Choosing your sin over obedience to Christ is what is in your heart and manifesting itself in the deepest part of your life towards Christ. You love in that moment your sin more than you love Christ. And if you're saying that that's not true, I'm saying to you this morning, your heart has already deceived you. And then, and then, if that weren't enough, you come to the house of God in that condition. And you draw near to God with your lips and your lives and your heart betray you. And God says, you're far from me. You're far from me because your heart's not right. Your heart is far from me. And everything you've sung and everything you've prayed and everything you've preached and everything you've heard, it's empty, it's vain, it's worthless. Until you address your heart. I'm not concerned about your sacrifice. I'm concerned about your heart. It's a matter of the heart. That's why in verse 20, Jesus summarizes it all and he says, it's your heart that defiles you. It's not the cleanliness of your hands. Oh, friends, don't you feel the weight of this passage of Scripture? Don't you see the need to ponder the implications of this passage? How many of us come to church week in and week out and go through the motions and put on a front and present some kind of image and the whole time we're far, far, far from God. How many of us find ourselves this very moment living in willful disobedience to God, living in sexual sin, living in a mistreatment of others, living in full-flown gossip about people, and making excuses and justifying the condition of our heart so we can keep playing our games? And what we're doing at the end of the day is we're playing games at the foot of the cross. And God says, I will have none of that. None of it. It's empty. It's worthless. I care about your heart. All of us have them. The Pharisees and the scribes had them. Jesus' disciples had them. 
And you and I have them. Spiritual blind spots. And if they go unchecked, they will lead us into a pit of eternal destruction. Our need is not clean hands. Our need is pure hearts before God. The world is concerned about the outward, about the facade, about the image, about the Instagram life. That's what the world's concerned about. Have an Instagram life. And God's concerned about the inward that you'll never see on Instagram. But it's what God sees. It's what God cares about. So how's your sight? So for the last year or so, I've had trouble with my eyes. And so I, I go to the eye doctor every January and went to the eye doctor, told him the trouble I was having with my eyes. He asked me what I've been doing, told him I've been doing a lot of extra studying with school and everything and reading lots of books and staring at computer screen. And he said, well, your, your lens and your bifocals, it's, it's not big enough. You're, you're having to work harder. So we need to get you just some regular reading glasses for when you study. And I thought bifocals were bad. And so, so I got regular reading glasses. So right now I'm wearing my bifocals. And I can, I can see most all of you pretty good. Right? But if I take them off and I put on my reading glasses, is anybody in the room? <laughs> I can't see anybody, right? But if I can see my Bible and I can see my notes, but I can't see you. Miss Anna will come to my office and knock on the door and want to talk to me, and I'll be studying, and I've got my readers on. And I look up, I can't see her. This is a blur over there, right? So, wait a minute, Miss Anna, wait a minute. Got to switch glasses. You know why? Because if I'm not looking through the right lens, everything's distorted. Some of us today... We're not looking through the right lens. We're not looking through the right lens of Jesus. And what he says to us in this passage of scripture. And because of that, our lives are blurred. They're distorted. There's no clarity. There's a lot of confusion. Look to Christ today. See him on the cross, friend. See his blood poured out for you so that you could be free from tradition. You could be free from works. You could be free from trying to work and work and work and make yourself more acceptable to God. And you could find there in the cross that when you receive Christ in your life, God will love you no more than what he does in that moment through his son. And you will be free a freedom like you've never known. And if you're a Christian today, if you would just look through that same lens that brought you into the family, the Lord Jesus, and draw near to him, he'll get your eyes fixed in the right direction. You may have some confessing to do, but he'll put you back on the right track. Let's pray.